Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like for you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find it, if you'd find the 15th chapter, I would greatly appreciate it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this morning I have the honor of preaching to you from verses 29 down through verse 34. It is a joyous thing to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day. I hope you've been encouraged already. It's also very encouraging to be led, led by we, well, they bleed us sometimes too, but to be led by young people who are living for the Lord and who are honoring the Lord in doing that. We've had a great relationship with North Greenville University and Charleston Southern University and Anderson University for many years. Their presidents are all friends of mine, great and godly men, and it is a good thing to show our young people. I spent some time this morning in our children's and preschool hall thanking those volunteers who were back there managing the hostage situation you created when you left your children back there. But it seems like yesterday, some of the volunteers, the leaders and I were talking about just yesterday, it was our little ones running around, and now many of them are grown and gone off to college. It does happen in the cycle of life, and it is an important thing to present in a world of options to our young people that you can go on into your professional life or your continued academic career, and you can also love the Lord Jesus at the same time. It can be a wonderful, adventurous, fun-filled, passionate time of your life, but a time where you can do it with and through the Lord's will. In fact, what we want is we want our young people to get it right. I often tell parents, all, we tend to stress over things that don't really matter when we really need to pay attention to the formation of the character of our children because their character, their integrity, their moral compass is what will help them navigate the various situations and decisions in life that we can't always prepare them for. But if they know who they are and they know whose they are, that changes everything. In fact, this morning, I'd like to call this sermon, Getting It Right. You have to get it right when it comes to certain beliefs within our faith. If you've been in this series with me, you know that we've been calling it not in vain because Paul uses that phrase on multiple occasions. There are three definitions of the word vain in our language, as is true in Paul's language. The first one is when someone's full of themselves. They operate in vanity. That is not how Paul is using this. It's the second two that really speak to why Paul chose these words, marked by futility, and then thirdly, having no real value, to try in vain to save a burning building, to do something that ends up having no effect on our lives. Now, why would Paul grab that word? Well, it's because of the entire subject of chapter 15 that we began the week before Easter, just a few weeks ago. There was a threat to a very basic and important doctrine within the church in Corinth. And that doctrine was the rejection of a bodily resurrection. Now, we are resurrection people. We preach the resurrection on Easter, but we do not consign the resurrection to just the experience of Christ after his death and burial. We actually believe, and the Bible clearly teaches, that because of Jesus' resurrection, there will one day be a resurrection of 
all the dead, the graves and the oceans of this world will give up her dead. And upon that bodily resurrection, then people will be assigned to an eternity with the Lord in a new heaven and a new earth or an eternity without Christ because they rejected his son. This is a hallmark, pillar, basis, foundation, bedrock belief. However, in Corinth, some people were beginning to reject that. They were being influenced by the world around them, which said, hey, there is life after death, but only for your soul. Who needs this old body? It's the source of all of our problems. Christians would actually agree in part that our bodies as they are today are fallen. They are under the influence of the curse of sin. But at the second coming, at the resurrection, we will be delivered from the curse of sin and our bodies will be a part of the glorious new heaven and new earth. Now, where does that come from scripturally? Well, we don't have time this morning to survey at all, but just go back to the garden. God did not create Adam and Eve as two spirit children floating around in limbo. No, before sin entered creation, God created Adam and Eve in real living bodies. He gave them arms and legs. He gave them heads and eyes. He gave them the experience of having a body and being with in communion with God. In fact, when God comes back to the garden in the cool of the evening, he walks with them in the garden. That is the pre-incarnate Christ. That is the person of God revealing himself to them. And so our bodies, while they can be a source of great sorrow and they are a source of sin, they are not to be looked upon as having no place in our eternity. Our eternity will be physical. It'll be real. We're going to eat food. We're going to laugh laughs. We're going to hug. We're going to embrace. We're going to rule. We're going to reign. We're going to work. We're going to honor God. We're not going to be angelic beings floating on clouds in a constant state of praise and worship. Yes, there will be amazing worship in the new heaven and the new earth, but we will be as we were created to be in the garden with real, tangible existence. So to reject a future bodily resurrection is to really chip away at the gospel. And so Paul, he deals with this in many ways. Do you remember on Easter Sunday, and unless you're a guest of ours, if you remember on Easter Sunday, we dealt with this passage specifically earlier in the chapter where what would reality be if Christ was not raised from the dead? And now, beginning in verse 29, Paul introduces reality if we will not be raised from the dead. In fact, if you like to take notes, I'll give you two main divisions. They're simply this. Three questions if we're not raised from the dead. And then in just a few minutes... I'll finish with three commands if we are going to be raised from the dead. Let's look at the three questions first. Verse 29 starts with an otherwise in 1 Corinthians 15. And the reason is verse 28. Verse 28, as we dealt with last week, says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in 
all. So he kind of gets to this great crescendo of theological truth that the last act of the son will be to hand the fully redeemed kingdom back to God the father and God as father, son, and spirit will rule over and be over and be in all of the new heaven and the new earth as it was intended to be. So after painting this magnificent theological eternal picture, Paul then drops down to the weeds of the problem and he says, if none of this happens, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul asks three rhetorical questions to challenge the rejection of a bodily resurrection. Let me just pause. Most of you don't challenge the bodily resurrection. You say, Pastor, what does it edify me to study a passage about rejecting the bodily resurrection if I don't reject the bodily resurrection? This is an important question. I think it matters. Your time's important. And I think that whenever you sit in a sermon, I think it's a sin to be boring when you preach. I think it matters that God's word be made real and alive so that you can understand it. It is real and alive, but I've seen some preachers take the realness and the life right out of it. I want you to know why I'm explaining this to you. Number one, it is God's word. So no matter whether or not you are particularly struggling with an issue in God's word, the word of God feeds your soul. I like all food. Look at me. I like all of it, but some food I like more than others. I was having a conversation last night with my wife about brisket tacos. Again, they came up in a sermon earlier this winter. I really ought to go see somebody. I mean, it just keeps coming up. So there are certain foods that I thoroughly enjoy, but my health will break down almost immediately if I stop feeding my body something. Now, it's a good thing to fast, and that's biblical. It's a good thing. But if you cut nourishment off from the human body, your body will begin to break down. Starvation will set in. We've seen images of this all over the world. As a Christian, listen, the way you feed your spiritual body is the bread of the Word of God. So so understanding the Word of God, even if you're not quite sure how it may apply to you today, feeds your spirit. I certainly don't remember every meal I've ever eaten or fed my children, but I know the sum total of those meals has kept us alive and healthy to this point. Second reason it's important to study things like this. You live in a day where people are identifying themselves as Christians, yet questioning everything about biblical Christianity. This does not mean we are angry at people when they are confused or deceived, but you better be able to defend your faith. If you are a born-again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian, you must accept and believe in a future bodily resurrection 
a future judgment and a future new heaven and new earth that Christians will joyfully be a part of and a future damnation of hell that all those without Christ will be consigned to having been lost in their own sin. This is basic Christian theology 101. Liberalism within Christianity. I'm not speaking of political liberalism, though they do get connected at some point. But liberalism within theology always chips away at the existence of hell, at the existence of judgment, at the existence of God's mercy and his wrath. And when you chip away at the belief of eternity, then you chip away at the need for a savior. And when you don't need a savior, you can press Jesus down to a historically good man who taught some things and may have done some supernatural activity, but he does not need to be submitted to as your Lord and Savior. And when you don't have to submit to him as your Lord and Savior, you also don't have to believe what he said about his Bible, which it is true, every word of it from start to finish. Therefore, you can redefine your ethic and your morality based on the conversation of today. This is why I walk you through it word by word, line by line, chapter by chapter, because I want you to be full-blooded varsity Christians. Ain't no JV in the kingdom. I want you to know what you believe. Paul asked three questions. The first one is, we do not look forward to a bodily resurrection. Why do we symbolize it with something mysterious for the gospel? Now, I just got through on my little soapbox about the word of God. I now have to deal with probably one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. Paul references the baptism of the dead. Now, before you get wigged out, he's not referencing actually baptizing a corpse. He's referencing what appears to be people being baptized in some way, shape, or form connected to those who have passed away. Now, when you study this, you'll find multiple scholars saying two things. One, I'm talking conservative scholars, people who love God's word. One, here are 17 things it could be. That's a telltale sign when you go to Bible college or seminary. If a commentary offers you 17 possible interpretations, that means, secondly, we don't know. We don't know. Paul doesn't explain himself, and the Holy Spirit did not see fit for Paul to spend time explaining himself. Let me read the passage. I'll explain it to the best I can, and then we're going to move on. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of, that on behalf of can be translated for or in cause of, on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Let's remember what Paul's point is. Paul's point is that anything we do around the subject of a future resurrection is null and void if there's no future resurrection. The people who were just baptized in your presence a few moments ago, before I had the privilege of 
beginning the sermon. We're baptized by being taken down into water and lifted out of it because as people with baptistic theology, that's what we are, we believe that part of the resurrection of our future is signified through the full immersion of the body in water and the coming up out. One said it this way, you don't sprinkle dirt on a dead body, you bury it. So we baptismally bury the body in the water and bring it up. But our act of baptism would be null and void if there weren't a future for every one of those people to experience bodily resurrection. So this is Paul's point, let's not miss his point. But what in the world does he mean by saying being baptized on behalf of the dead? If you've ever studied this subject, you'll know that our neighbors and friends who are not biblical Christians in the Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons, they are our friends, they are our neighbors, they're not our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It is not another denomination because they reject the basic teaching of the full deity of Jesus as being the eternal Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. They practice a ceremony called the baptism of the dead and they use this verse as the basis. However, they did not begin doing this until 1840, and they teach an unbiblical truth, which is that if you have the ability to trace an ancestor or a loved one, a friend in your life that you're connected to who was never baptized into the church of the Latter-day Saints in the name of Jesus Christ as they define him, you can petition the church for you or someone else to be baptized vicariously on their behalf. So you go into the waters and you say, I'm being baptized for, you say the person's name. And then according to Mormon doctrine, which is not biblical, that person in their state of having already died gets the choice as to whether or not to choose to receive the blessing of your baptism or not. None of that's nowhere in scripture, that's terrible English. None of that's anywhere in Scripture. It's nowhere in Scripture. And of course, it didn't begin until 1840, 1,840 years, give or take, after the Lord Jesus came, lived, died, and birthed the church. What we have here is we have three possibilities. Some say that the Corinthians, in their preoccupation with the afterlife, had begun this practice of some vicarious baptism and Paul just chose not to condemn it at this point, but rather to say, even this? Well, this don't mean anything if there's no resurrection. Other commentators argue that it may be a reference to being baptized because of the influence of a dead person. A person who's already passed away, but they're witness in your life, their martyrdom, their stand for Christ is one of the primary reasons you enter the waters of baptism. Another theory I think that can hold some water is that Paul is referencing people 
who are being baptized, but one of the primary motives is they want to be reunited with a loved one who's already passed away. Here's my point. Even the most conservative, Bible-honoring scholars say history doesn't tell us. We don't know for sure. We do know that if the Corinthians were participating in some vicarious baptism, it's not commanded or taught anywhere else in Scripture. There is a reference a few hundred years after Paul to some Gnostic heretics. These were people who developed a heretical view, an unbiblical view of Christ, being baptized vicariously, and some of the church fathers quickly condemned it. We also know this. What does the book of Hebrews teach us? The book of Hebrews teaches us, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is no biblical grounds that any individual can do something that will transfer salvation to another individual. In fact, I got great news for you. The only thing we can do to help someone find a relationship with Jesus is tell them about Jesus. It's witnessing. I cannot make someone believe. I cannot make someone submit. I can pray that God would work in their heart and I can share the gospel with my language and my life. That is all I can do to affect someone else's eternity. But Paul's point lest we forget it, is that anything wrapped up in the celebration of baptism is null and void if there is no future resurrection. And no sooner does he finish verse 29 that he jumps into a second question. If there's no future, if the dead are not raised, why suffer for the mission of the gospel? Look at verse 30. Look what the Bible says in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Now, what's he talking about there? Well, he's writing this from Ephesus. Things had not gone well for Paul in Ephesus. We'll see a reference to that in just a moment. But we know that Paul had already taught the Corinthian believers that his call had created a great deal of suffering. In chapter 4 of this same book, look how Paul describes his life, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where the scripture teaches us about this. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. In other words, he's saying it's not a privileged position. It's not something where I get a, a, a lot of perks. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. This is how Paul is describing himself. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He goes on to say, to the present hour. So Paul is again recounting how hard life had been. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So in summation, Paul is saying, it's not been easy to join the mission of Christ. Now drop that into the main point. Why would anybody do it if there's not a future? Why in the world 
would you even spend an ounce of energy, a dime of your money, a drop of your blood, if you just die never to live again? Our view of eternity must inform our willingness to sacrifice now, which is why Paul interestingly says something. Look what he says beginning in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain, if humanly speaking, I fault with beasts at Ephesus? So Paul not only says, why suffer for the mission of the gospel? He says, if there's no resurrection, why stand for the message of the gospel? You realize the middle ground's gone. It's gone. Either you believe God and his word or you don't. And what we are finding is that the tables of our society are turning. And that which is obvious is now becoming deceptive. That which we just assumed all accepted is now being rejected. I'm excited coming up on Mother's Day. And then again on Father's Day, I'm going to do two messages from God's Word. On Mother's Day, I'm going to preach a message from God's Word called, What is a Woman? And on Father's Day, I'm going to preach a message from God's Word, What is a Man? And I would tell you that I would say a decade ago, I'm not sure I would have guessed that I would need to prepare my church with a theology to answer such a simple question. What is a woman? And what is a man? And, and what we find in our society is that the middle ground's gone. The ability to be lukewarm is becoming harder and harder. You either stand for the Lord or you don't. You stand for his word or you do not. And the persecution and the sacrifice, though we know so much blessing here and so much freedom, I believe we are raising a generation of children, many of which I looked into their eyes this morning as I walked up and down the hallway, who will know real persecution for saying the Bible is true and Jesus saves. The Bible is true and Jesus is the way of salvation. Our children, your grandchildren that you love and have so many dreams and passions and aspirations for, you should cherish every single moment with them but you better get them ready for the spiritual war that is coming in our world because it is coming. Don't parent or grandparent in fear. You don't have to worry. You just pray God's protection over them, his anointing over their life. You share the gospel with them. You equip them with the word of God, and you send them out, not in a defensive posture, but in an offensive posture. You send them out, as the psalmist says, like arrows in the quiver of a warrior. I want the enemy to hate the fact that I'm raising children. I want the enemy to hate the fact that we at Church of the Mill are grounding them in the word of God so that they won't be corrupted by the modern day total disrespect and affront to the holiness of God. And, and Paul says here, I fought wild beasts. Now, he didn't literally. At this point, we have no reason to believe Paul been thrown to the lions writing this. By the way, you don't win if you're thrown to the lions. 
He often uses these metaphorical references to talk about false teachers. In the Philippians, he calls them the dogs, the beasts. Look what he says again in the passage beginning in verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? And then he says something pretty interesting. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, why would I even get in a fight over the gospel? Why would I even face persecution over teaching my children right from wrong? Why, why would I even suggest that individuals ought to be held accountable for their actions? Why, why would I be so bold as to say that God's word doesn't allow room for you to deny a future resurrection? He says, if, if, if there is no resurrection, you know what I ought to do? What the rest of the world is doing, just eat and drink and have as much fun as you can because you're going to hit the grave. Become a disciple of pleasure. This is what the world is pursuing. John Piper would suggest that pleasure is actually not a bad pursuit. The problem is, is that we're exchanging the best pleasure for the world's false pleasure. Worldly pleasure is only pleasurable in the moment and comes with great consequences, sorrow and shame. But to pleasure in Christ is actually to pursue the greater good. And Piper calls it Christian hedonism, the pursuit of the divine pleasure. Paul's point is, there's no reason to stand for anything if there's no resurrection. Why does it matter? He quotes Isaiah 22. Isaiah says, in that day, the Lord, of God, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness. Some of you got that down. For baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, what broke out? What God say? God say, be broken. Weep over your sin. Look at verse 13. Joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Second reference in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus references this in the book of Luke. And I will say to my soul, he's talking about a man, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Is it wrong to enjoy delicious food? to laugh with our family, to rest, to take vacations? Absolutely not. It's wrong to align your life to do nothing but pursue the next point of pleasure. That's wrong. We serve the Lord with gladness. We find joy in not only resting and relaxing, but in doing his will. I remember growing up, there was a hymn, we'll work till Jesus comes and then will be gathered home. The idea Paul is saying is that without a resurrection, why would I sacrifice anything? But what if it's true? And it is. What if there is a future resurrection? What if you are going to die and in Christ you'll be buried, your family will take care of your remains, and upon his return, you'll be resurrected forever to be united with him. And you will enjoy the communion with Christ you were intended to have 
before sin corrupted the earth. If that is your future, what should you do today? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll close with three commands. These are real simple. First command Paul gives us. Look up. Look to what God has to say. Stop being deceived doctrinally. Look how the passage begins in verse 33. Do not be deceived. If I could describe one word for our culture today, it is deceived. Do not be deceived. Now, then Paul says something pretty interesting. He quotes an ancient saying. And some scholars think it came out of a Greek comedy couple of 300 years before Jesus. And and by Paul's day, it would have been common speech, and Paul grabbed it and used it because it's true spiritually. Bad company ruins good morals. Every parent in the room knows you don't just pay attention to your kids. You pay attention to the kids your kids like. Who is she? Who is he? Who are his people? Where does he live? Does that young man go to church? Where did you meet him? What does his mother or father say about this? So well, that's old-fashioned. No, it's not. It's just common sense. If you don't agree with it, have some babies. You'll change your mind. We know that all of us are influenced by this. Why is it that churches work so hard? Why is it that 52 Sundays a year we ask you to connect with us with a connect card? Because we know that if you don't connect with some church, and become connected in relationship with people who are trying to pursue Christ, you will never accomplish what God has intended for you. You'll never know the fullest potential of your walk with Christ if you try to go at it alone. Uh, There are extenuating circumstances. There are shut-ins on our role who can't be here. There are men and women serving in armed armed forces. There are folks who try. I, I get all that. But the rhythm of a Christian is that they be connected with other people who are pushing them and encouraging them in their walk with the Lord. I would say that any mature Christian in the room would agree. We're the sum total of many other godly people who poured into us during the formation of our faith. It's why those volunteers back on that hallway mean so much as they teach those lessons to lay that foundation for our children. Now, it's interesting that Paul says bad company. Now, we know he's not talking about the world because earlier, remember when we preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 on sexual sin in the church? Paul actually laid out a principle that's applicable here. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, here's the problem with that. You're not going to get much done in this world if you only associate with people who are morally right all the time. Well, Paul knows that we would be asking that question. That's a head-scratcher. So look what he says in verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would not need to go out of the world. Excuse me, you would need to go out of the world. Paul's saying, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about people who don't know Christ, who don't love Christ, who don't trust Christ, who don't follow Christ. I, I want you to be salt and light in the world. Paul's talking about the church, which is why he says, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He's talking about a Christian, someone who professes Christ. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed 
or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, we dealt with this principle several months ago, and it is a difficult one. But what is the point? The point is, I can do business and life and neighborhood and little league and school with people with all kinds of various backgrounds, various belief systems, various lifestyles. And I can be a good and kind neighbor and try to stand for what I believe in, recognizing that the school is not the church, that the public square is not the church, that Washington, D.C. is not the church, that the state house is not the church, that the little league field is not the church, that the factory floor is not the church. And so when I go into these places, I don't go in immediately demanding that everybody there see things as I see things because they have to see the Savior before they can see the Savior's will. I get that. But when someone who says, I'm your brother in Christ, I'm your sister in Christ, begins to chip away at the basic teachings of Scripture, beware. Beware. Do not allow them to have influence in your life. This is why he says, make sure You look up to God and not be deceived. But secondly, wake up. He then gets into the subject of spiritual sobriety. Look at verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, this is not a passage about drunkenness. The Bible's full of those. This is not one. Paul just takes the physical example of drunkenness and says, this is what you've become. You're drunk. You've been lulled to sleep. Your senses are dulled. Your judgment is impaired. Any person in law enforcement will tell you that people have wrecks all the time and claim they'd only had a few drinks. Yet science has revealed that only a few drinks is all it takes for your judgment time, for your reaction time to be greatly affected. Paul knew in the ancient world the threat of alcohol. It's not new. And so Paul says, spiritually, you've allowed yourself to be drunk. That's why I said what I said earlier. There's a lot of people who would say, hey, on Sunday mornings, you know, just keep it light, make it real applicable. See, I I just think you deserve to dive deep. I don't think life is always light and applicable. I think when you walk out those doors, it's pretty complex, convoluted, and confusing. You you, got to be willing to dig into the Word and do it in reasonable nuggets so that you can digest it in order not to be drunk spiritually, which is why he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. I thought about what Peter said. What's the opposite of a drunken stupor? Well, it's to be sober-minded. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? This is not just for apostles or pastors or leaders. Everybody, your adversary, you do have an adversary. The enemy does not want to be your friend. He wants to destroy you. If you're saved, he'd rather just render you null and void so that no one else comes to know Christ because of your life. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I was listening to uh, David Tripp teach this week. Uh, I was at a conference where he came, or Paul Tripp, and, and, uh, and he's, he's pointed out in a fascinating treatment of this passage that lions never roar before the kill. They're quiet. They roar after the kill. So if you hear the roar, it's too late. He's prowling around like a lion, 
who will become a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So you can't afford not to pay attention to what you believe and what others around you believe and whom you're allowing to influence your life. Wake up. Look up. But finally, straighten up. Paul does something interesting, and I'll end where he ends. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Now, wait a minute. Man, we're good at talking about sin. But sin stuff you do, right? You commit sin. That's why we call them sins of commission. But this passage has nothing to do with a particular behavior they're doing. This is not like chapter 5 where there's sexual immorality. This is not like chapter 1 and 2 where there's spiritual arrogance and people are dividing themselves into factions and sections. No, this is a chapter about people whose belief is becoming inaccurate, is wrong. They're making a calculated error. I was reading an article about the top 25 mistakes in history the crew of the Titanic ignoring the warnings about icebergs in the area made the list. Mistakes like that cost millions of dollars and countless lives. You can be mistaken doctrinally. And when you deviate doctrinally, it can be disastrous. It does not mean that you go to heaven by passing a systematic theology exam. It does not mean that you have to somehow examine everything you've ever heard and believe that somehow your salvation hangs on every dotted I and every crossed T. No, 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 no. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But as we come into his kingdom, it is important that we believe the full gospel. And the same Christ who says he died for us the same Christ who rose again is the same Christ who guarantees a bodily resurrection. So to chip away at that is to chip away at the very gospel. And by the way, that's what's happened. Every church that calls itself a church that is deviating from God's word always loses the gospel. They always lose the gospel. Because the gospel demands submission to his word and the word affirms the fullness of the gospel. Which is why when you have a passage like this, he says, don't deviate doctrinally. And then he ends with the whole why of the three commands. Why look up? Why straighten up? Why wake up? Look what he says. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. He's not talking about the world. He's saying some who've gone down these paths don't know the Lord. They're lost. And the church ought to take that personally. It ought to matter. And therefore, when it doesn't matter, Paul uses a pretty strong word. He says, last phrase, verse 34, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed. If in your church there are people who think they're saved and they're lost because you have deviated from the doctrines of the Bible. Which is why we must present the gospel when they're second graders, seventh graders, 44-year-old graders, 
senior adults. Doesn't mean we bring everybody into room and manipulate everybody to question their salvation every week, not at all. We're not the church that does 27 verses of because he lives or just as I am or I surrender all in order for you to make a decision so that we can be out of here for lunch. But the gospel must be presented. And all you have to do, all you have to do when you're examining any church that seems to be deviating from God's word, ask the question, where is the gospel? They're not calling people to faith and repentance in Christ. They're not calling sin, sin. They're not preaching and singing about the blood. They're not talking about a future heaven. It's all about improving now. And that's all you have if there is no resurrection, which is why he says, you better know your why. So if you're here today and you're living with a woman you're not married to, why do you move out if you want to follow Jesus? It's not so people won't talk about you or so you can cancel out your mistakes. It's because you believe that every area of your life, including your sexual relationships, should come under the lordship of Jesus. And while you cannot change what you may have already done, you can turn to the Lord and say, what I have been doing is wrong, and I repent of that, and I'm moving out, and I'm stopping my sexual relationship with this person, and I'm reevaluating your will for my future with them. Why do you not cheat on your taxes? It's not because you pat yourself on the back. It's not because somehow you feel like others might look down on you. It's because the only reason you have taxes to pay is because the God of heaven has given you income. And the income you have that you worked for and earned, you only earned it because of the brain and the body God gave you and the education and the skills that he gave you the opportunity to acquire in order to have the living that you make. And by the way, some of you were born poor and you're not poor today because in God's grace, he allowed you to be born into a society where if you are in poverty, you can work your way out of it. You have brothers and sisters in the Lord today who love the Lord Jesus and work just as hard as you, and they're born into broken third world economies where no matter how hard they work, they will never have more than the generation past them. And they get the same heaven we do. That's why you don't cheat on your taxes. Why do you decide to stop allowing smut into your brain through your device when no one's looking? It's not because you're scared your wife or your husband will catch you or because you wouldn't want your teenagers to find out what you view. It's because the God of heaven who lives in you has something better for your mind to dwell on. And if you feed your mind endless images of smut, of sorrow, of criticism, of hatred, of gory, grotesque, inappropriate humor, of sexualization of young women, if you feed your mind that, you won't be able to control your mind when other temptations come. You have to know your why. It matters that your belief inform your behavior and your behavior is not just you conforming to the people around you. We're not the ones who are gonna judge your life. We had nothing to do with your future resurrection. But if you know the Lord, then your future informs your today, which is why as much as it depends on us this week, 
Let's get it right. By his power, we get it right. We build our life upon his truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to glean from it and to learn and to study and to grow. Thank you for the fact that not a person in this room, starting with me, earned my right to have a resurrection. Thank you so much that not one of us can ever be separated from your love in Christ once we know you. Thank you that this is not a performance-based religion where we work for the hope of an eternity. No, the Son has done the work. It is finished. And yet because of your great mercy, you have established your Lordship in our hearts and you give us the privilege and the honor of submitting to your will in all situations that we may honor you, not for our glory, but that others may see Christ in us. Lord, would you make that our prayer? That we would build our life upon Christ.